0: Okay, well, welcome to the LSE, for those of you who are from outside, and well done on coming back, for those of you who are our students. It's the last week of term here, so everyone's a bit frazzled and tired, and and so I think it's a very nice way to end the term by having um, Dina here with us. Um, Just before I get started... um, couple of housekeeping things if you have a mobile phone please switch it off or put it on silent um, so uh, we have we're gonna be here until 7:30 um, uh, Dina will speak for about 45 minutes or so or maybe less even <laughs> than that less. Uh, probably less and then we'll do a q and um, Uh, So just to introduce myself, my name is Roham Alvandi I teach the modern history of Iran and the Persian Gulf here at the LSE Um, And uh, I'm very, very happy to welcome Dina Esfandiari to the LSE She's come all the way from down the road at King's College She used to be all the way down the road at um, S, So some of you may know her from the good work that she did there, but we're ha- very happy that she's moved even closer to us now at, um, uh, at KCL. Um, uh, she is a MacArthur Fellow at the Center for Science and Security Studies at King's College London. Um, she works on security relations between states and non-proliferation in the Middle East, including Iran and Syria's WND programs. And I hear there is a book in the works <laughs> Um, so I'm looking forward to um, to reading that. So without further ado, Dina, welcome Thank to the LSE.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. So I've been uh, given the very simple task of giving you an overview of what the region looks like now that the nuclear deal is done in, um, let's say, half an hour, to be fair. So we half have enough time for q okay. sure. and <laughs> In about half an hour, um, so no easy task. Um, so, I, so I'll, I'll do just that, um, and, um, and then I'll talk a little bit about the potential <coughs> for perhaps um, building dialogue or at least engagement of Iran. Um, I think today, after in the post-deal context that we're in, uh, I think that there's a general recognition that Iran is a, um, a significant national state in the region. Um, it's large and resource-rich. It's got a relatively youthful and educated population. None of this is news to, to any of us. Um, but that it is also, and perhaps most importantly, the largest country in the Middle East with the capacity to pursue a serious international agenda today. Um, So the question, I guess, on everyone's lips is, now that the deal is done, does this make Iran a potential partner? Um, I would say that's unlikely anytime soon, but the nuclear deal does open the door to um, dialogue with Iran. Um, Up until today, meaningful dialogue with Iran was basically predicated on resolving the nuclear issue. And all other problems, issues, um, had taken a back seat over the past two two decades. Um, Whereas now, we have a real opportunity to moderate Iran's three and a half decades of um, hostility to the West and an opportunity to, to indigenize Middle Eastern security and draw Iran Into an effort to stabilize the region um, rather than perhaps being the troublemaker in the region. And to be honest, in a region that's characterized by chaos, um, strong regional interlocutors are absolutely vital. So, in my view, the implications of the deal are um, threefold one, on Iran's domestic policies, uh, two, on Iran's relations with the West, the EU, and the US in particular. And three, on the region, which, of course, is our focus. But I will touch on the, on the other two, insofar as they're important for um, Iran's regional relations. So domestically, the idea is that the nuclear agreement is supposed to empower those who pursued the deal. So that's um, the Rouhani camp. Now, the Rouhani camp is, I mean, his, his administration is significantly more moderate than, um, than some of the others that are on the scene. So the question that comes to mind is, does that mean that there's more scope for moderation on Iran's um, foreign policy? So the the problem with empowering um, a team like Rouhani's is that because of Iran's dynamic um, internal political scene, it's going to create a certain backlash um, because politics in in Iran is all about balancing. And so I think we're in the middle of that today, where domestically you see, perhaps, a little bit more leeway being afforded to some of the hardliners in Iran so that they can feel that you know they are not out of the loop, not being pushed aside, not being marginalized um, and and that is also tied to a certain amount of politicking that 's going on before the February um, parliamentary elections um, so that 's the the domestic impact in terms of the region um, I think in my view uh, Today, the nuclear agreement has freed up political space for dialogue with Iran, as I've mentioned. The idea is that over time, this agreement should temper um, Iran's regional policy. There's no doubt that a strong and more moderate and independent Iran is naturally going to pursue its own interests, but Tehran is likely to be more understanding of um, Western goals if it develops ties with the EU and the U.S., the problem is that the deal is having a mixed impact on Iran's um, regional policy at the moment. Um, as soon as the deal was done, Tehran was clear that it aimed to mend the divide between itself and, and its neighbors, but it hasn't necessarily scaled back a lot of its disruptive activities in the region. Um, why is that? Well, in my view, it's because um, Iran's foreign policy is not necessarily in the hands of the more moderate camp that runs certain parts of um, Iran's government at the moment. Uh, foreign policy, according to Iran's constitution, foreign policy is largely the purview of the supreme leader and the Revolutionary Guards, who have very different ideas of what they want for Iran in the region. Um, what's more, they today want to show that yes, they've agreed to a nuclear agreement, but this doesn't mean that Iran is no longer a force to be reckoned with in the region. So, I think that it might lead to greater intra-regional tensions. Um, in the immediate term, and I think we've witnessed that in the last few months. Um, The fear is that this agreement uh, is likely to deeply intensify this regional cold, which I suppose now has become a little bit more hot, um, war. So in terms of dialogue with Iran, I think there should be a two-pronged strategy um, for both intra-regional, but also inter-regional dialogue with Iran. First, on resolving areas of conflict Today, in the region, where clearly discussion is, is important. Um, and second, on collaboration, future collaboration on different issues um, that have plagued the region for a while. On conflict resolution, I'll start by talking a little bit about ISIS and um, er, ISIS in Iraq in particular. So, in my view, this is the most immediate opportunity for collaboration with the West in particular. Iran is more committed to Iraq than any other regional player. Um, this is for a whole range of reasons. I mean, religious reasons, the Shia constituency that's present in Iraq, the 910 miles of porous borders between the two countries, the high levels of trade between the two countries. Um, so needless to say, Iraq is, is vital for, um, for Iran. The current <coughs> Iranian presence in Iraq is, um, uh, is mainly commanders that, are, that have been sent there, IRGC commanders that have been sent there, to oversee and lead some of the militias that are that are there. Um, it also includes a very overt public diplomacy campaign um, surrounding uh, General Soleimani's presence in Iraq, although I'd say in the last couple of months that's probably been scaled back a little bit. Um, and a certain amount of military assistance, uh, weaponry, advisory, um, you know, money, But I'd say one of the most important things that Iran is doing in Iraq today, um, other than the ground presence it has, is also its efforts to coordinate um, the efforts between the different groups that are present in Iraq today. Um, In my view, you can't contain and roll the Islamic State back in in Iraq with just U.S.-led airstrikes. Ground assistance of the type that Iran is um, providing is welcome, so long as it doesn't come at the expense of um, Iraq's Sunni population. So with an agreement, in my view, coordination becomes possible, it becomes less controversial. So they were doing a certain amount of coordination before the agreement. Um, But the agreement, as I said, removes this barrier to dialogue with Iran, so coordination in Iraq, on the ground, becomes easier. Um, It also, hopefully, should make the fight um, more effective. Working with Iran may give the US and its allies greater influence over Iranian actions on the ground. What does that mean? That means they might help manage um, the the influence that Tehran has over some of the Shiite militia groups. So that's Iraq. Um, Let's move to Syria. Now, Syria is considerably more problematic. Um, Clearly, Tehran and Washington have very different goals um, for Syria. I mean, I don't think I'll be teaching anybody anything here, but Iran wants um, the Alawite regime to remain in power. Washington wants President Assad gone, um, although I guess there's a little bit more nuance to that now. Um, But both do want to get rid of ISIS in Syria. So what has Iran been been doing? Uh, They've been funneling money, surveillance equipment, military equipment. Um, They've been funding, training, and arming uh, recently formed local popular committee uh, militias that are actually separate from the Shabiha militia network because Iran sees these guys as a possible structure that they could rely on um, should the regime actually collapse. And obviously they've been providing overt political support to um, President Assad. Um, there's a lot of debate about the cost of this war um, on Iran. So the figures, I mean, you have to take everything with a pinch of salt, but certainly what I've seen, um, up until about a year ago, Iran had spent allegedly up to $15 billion in aid, uh, much of it in fuel, $12.6 billion in um, financial supports, which amounts to about 600 to $700 million per month. Um, so clearly... This is a massive drain um, on Iranian reserves at a time where Iran is still facing sanctions. Um, Keep in mind that, yes, the deal is done, but no sanctions have been lifted. Uh, So, at the time, a couple of years ago, this had led to um, the rise of a serious debate amongst Iranian officials about the value of um, Iran's endeavor in Syria. Now, that was to a certain extent a little bit unprecedented because it's unusual for um, questioning, for Iranian officials to question what the government has decided to do, but this did happen and it lasted a little while. But that was largely quietened down um, after the rise of ISIS and the perception that the the group, you know, posed a significant threat to Iran as a nation. Um, So that really quietened down this debate that was going on in Tehran. But today, the number of um, IRGC deaths have risen. Um, and they've been very public deaths, um, including that of senior IRGC commander Hossein Hamidani on, ninth, uh, on the 9th of October. Um, so these have been very public, this obviously doesn't look good for Iran, and it also doesn't look good um, domestically when the bodies get flown back home. Um, so I would say that this debate that was going on within, um, within the government in Iran has kind of resurfaced a little bit today. Probably not as strong as it had two years ago, but you know people are starting to ask questions again about um, whether it's worthwhile Iran doing what it's doing in Syria. Um, also, as of October, Iran is um, finally sitting at the table uh, to you know discuss what's going on in Syria and find a solution to the crisis. So again, in my view, the deal kind of paved the way um, for this and to make this acceptable. Because I think before the deal, um, nobody was prepared to sit at the table and talk about Syria with Iran um, you know, before the agreement was, uh, was uh, agreed to. But um, the problem is that it's unclear how much um, Iran will actually be able to deliver in these negotiations. And this is because of what I was describing before which is that it is the Rouhani administration, it's that team that's sitting at the table in Vienna discussing these issues. Um, And I have no doubt that Zarif and his team are keen to um, find a solution to the Syria problem, Um, perhaps one that involves Assad stepping down, but I'm not sure he can then sell that back home in Tehran, um, or at least get Tehran's okay to agree to an actual plan for Syria. So that's Syria. Um, Moving on to Yemen. In my view, Yemen is the lowest-hanging fruit um, and potential for a successful dialogue between Iran and Saudi Arabia in particular. Um, As I'm sure everybody knows, Yemen has been plagued by instability and political and economic problems for a number of years now, perhaps since its inception. Um, But for Iran, it's quite low in its foreign policy priorities. Iran has little long-term strategic interest in Yemen. Um, It's relatively unimportant in in the list of things it's trying to tackle in the region. Um, Iran has no border with Yemen. It's it's a country that's very poor in resources, um, so it really has no strategic value to Iran. The the flip side to that is that there is um, a Shia population in Yemen which could be a useful ally to Iran, but even the Houthis that are present in Yemen, even though they are Shia, they're from a different school of thought, um, and they reject a certain number of Shia beliefs that are fundamental to Shia Islam, um, and some people would say that actually brings them a lot closer to Sunni Islam so um, the dynamics in Yemen and the way that they've evolved is actually quite interesting um, because arguably it's uh, kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that, that made this group become so close to Iran rather than you know, other groups in the region that would have reached out to them um, so in my view the link with the Houthis the link between Iran and the Houthis has been um, exaggerated the Houthis have legitimate local grievances, um, and Iranian control over them is actually uh, quite limited. Um, I like to compare it to Iran's control over Hamas rather than Hezbollah, for example. Um, the White House uh, a few months ago said that they, in their view, there was no command and control, um, control over the Houthis coming from Tehran, um, and one example of how little control and influence Iran has over the Houthis is that Iran actually told them not to go into Sana'a, but they ignored it and went in anyway. Um, In the Iranian leadership's mind, um, Iran is not entrenched in Yemen. It can easily disengage from that conflict because it's just not as involved. Um, It is significantly more concerned um, and committed to Iraq, firstly, and Syria, secondly. And for Iran, I think the leadership understands that it cannot afford to be involved in long drawn out conflicts on multiple fronts. Um, So there's going to, I mean, unless Iran gets, you know, a windfall of sanctions relief in the next couple of months, which of course we all know is highly unlikely, um, at some point, Iran is gonna have to make a choice. And at some point, it's gonna have to think strategically about what it's gonna focus on and what it's gonna disengage from. And in my view, top priority is Iraq. Um, Yemen is all the way down there. Um, so I think what happened in Tehran was that after everybody kept talking about Iranian presence, um, the Saudis, the rest of the Gulf countries, a lot of the media, Iran, some parties, some actors in Iran, actually decided to play to that. Um, you had a, a member of parliament that came out and you know, uh, announced that Iran actually controlled four Arab capitals, um, so Iran really started to play to that because for them, it was a fantastic way to project power and for them to be seen as a you know, master puppeteer in, in the region. Um, but actually, what they're doing in Yemen is largely focused on building capacity within the Houthis. So they're helping them organize their internal administration, helping them put in place um, security management procedures. Uh, they're offering them religious education, Um, And they've very recently built more official trade ties um, with some of the Houthis. Now, this is um, in huge contrast to Saudi Arabia, which, of course, sees Yemen as an absolute top priority. It's their backyard. um, And this is why they're so nervous, because their largest regional rival is supposedly present in their backyard. Um, Because of this high importance of Yemen for Saudi Arabia and low importance for Iran, I think you have an emerging um, let's use some technical terms here zone of possible agreement an emerging ZOPA between them Um, and I think that this is an area where Iran um, and Iranian officials are allegedly willing to do this um, can really offer an olive branch to Saudi Arabia in order to sit down and start discussing regional security problems I think the only problem that Iran has is that it doesn't want any preconditions to any kind of negotiation with, um, with the Saudis um, whereas I understand the Saudis want to sit down and have a couple of things that Iran have to agree to, even though they're not necessarily in Yemen, things like you know, Assad ha- Iran has to agree to Assad leaving so that we can then discuss other issues. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the impact of the agreement on the Gulf Arab states. Um, so as I said, uh, in my view, the, the agreement will, in the immediate term, worsen regional relations, and I think we've seen that in the last couple of months. It's no secret that the um, Gulf Arab states oppose the nuclear negotiations. Um, their concern, their primary concern, is with Iran's expansionist regional policy. For them, the deal provides Iran with further means to fund its proxies and to stabilize the region at their expense. Um, it's very much an Iran has won mentality um, in, in, the, in the Gulf countries, I think. Saudi Arabia has been the most vocal in its skepticism of the negotiations. Um, With its recent assertive foreign policy, I think Riyadh intends to counter the perceived Iranian influence either overtly um, or through checkbook diplomacy. The problem is, until today, I think that's been largely ineffective and I think Yemen is a good example of that. Um, And with this agreement, this need to counter um, Iran is going to, in my view, become further entrenched which is likely to inflame sectarian conflicts in the region for the foreseeable future. And this despite the fact that, in my view, there are limited options in terms of what the Gulf states can do to respond to this perceived Iranian threat. They are, however, likely to double down, as I've said, um, and to view any kind of rapprochement with Iran as tantamount to accepting Iranian gains in the region. Um, And every time I say this, I think back to a, a conversation I had with a Saudi official a little while ago, um, during the negotiations with Iran, where you know he was adamant that you don't understand these negotiations. If this is a, a, a great time for us, it's an opportunity for us, a historical opportunity, I believe, is what he said, to uh, find a way to kick Iran out of the region. I mean, this really explains to you how they see um, Iran in the Middle East. Um, so they're likely to continue. I mean, I do, I do focus on the Saudis because I think there's a little bit more nuance in some of the other countries in the Gulf, but the Saudis do tend to lead the wave. Um, and so they're likely to continue to view regional conflicts um, in the context of the larger struggle against a rising Iran. Um, in terms of uh, something else they might do, there's been a great deal of talk about the possibility of a um, regional proliferation cascade. Um, countries like Saudi Arabia have said repeatedly, we want anything Iran has under a final deal, which has sparked um, a certain amount of nervousness about uh, the spread of, uh, firstly, civilian nuclear programs and also the possible spread of nuclear weapons in the region. Um, For me, this this theory has been largely unchallenged, but actually a careful look at um, the actual technical capabilities of countries in the region... um, Things like lack of infrastructure, lack of human capacity, um, the political and security context, for example, their large dependence on U.S. security guarantees, and the intentions of some of the potential contenders contenders, confirms that much of this hype is really um, baseless, I believe. So today the deal um, is basically a fact of life in the region the U.S. have gone a long way, um, the U.S. and its allies have gone a long way towards um, attempting to reassure some of their Gulf Arab allies as a result of this agreement. Um, the post-deal context should be an opportunity to test Iranian willingness and ability to engage on regional conflicts, but also patch long-standing rivalries, um, which is something that, again, Iran has allegedly, well, not ele- it has said, that it's allegedly willing to to really take concrete steps towards um, mending the the divide between itself and some of its neighbors. Um, To finish off, uh, I'd like to discuss whether the deal um, is a model uh, that we can base ourselves on to promote regional dialogue. So the nuclear negotiations are an example of a sustained successful dialogue with Iran, and there aren't many of those. Um, it it's offers a good template for negotiations generally because they were inclusive, they were comprehensive, and they resulted in very much a win-win solution um, for both sides. So it's clear that um, we should uh, learn from it um, and also build on the momentum that it has generated. But, it, but in my view, it's not a good model to follow exactly. Firstly, there's a clear exhaustion of of the whole P5 plus one negotiating um, process. But more importantly, I think that regional security um, should be a product and result um, of the region, not just of the superpowers that are interested in the region. You can't have a system when you're negotiating regional security architectures without every state concerned present at the table. The problem with that is that um, there are very different visions of how to build a regional security architecture present in the region. Um, For example, the Gulf Arabs believe in the idea of increasing foreign presence in the region, giving them a stake in maintaining the stability of or what's left of the stability of the region. Whereas Iran believes in the complete opposite. They want to get rid of all foreign intervention in the region and indigenize regional security. So you have a fundamental opposition in the way that they view how they can secure their own security. The deal was um, also very comprehensive on the nuclear issue, but it wasn't comprehensive on anything else, on multiple issues. There was no grand bargain. And regional security is not going to be the same thing. It's not going to be a discussion on one issue that's been you know, top of the agenda for God knows how long. There are many, many problems and a real deficit of trust amongst the different players in the region um, which are going to have to be overcome. So it's going to be a lot harder to do, um, Believe it or not, then, then the P5 plus one negotiations on Iran. I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, that was um, very comprehensive and, <laughs> and succinct. Very <laughs> impressive. Um, so uh, we have about an hour almost for for Q and A. So, I'm going to ask you please to um, speak up when you ask your question, so that this little recorder here can hear you, and I'm going to ask you please to keep your question brief. Um, Remember that a question ends with a question mark, okay? It's not an (laughs) invitation to give a lecture, okay? Um, uh, And maybe we'll try to take a few at a time, just to give you a chance to think about... Um, your answer, so please. Sir.
2: Thank you. Uh, uh, I have a question. To what extent does the current bureaucratic structure where you have uh, where you have uh, Rouhani's administration with different perceptions and agendas versus uh, Khamenei and the IRGC create incoherence in terms of policy decision making and implementation? But I want to say, does it just create difficulty to make foreign policy decisions, but also just a bunch of different agencies end up acting differently, which creates a, a, a very suspicious outcomes in it. And uh, how can it hinder cooperation or building trust in terms of further negotiations or collaborations regarding regional issues?
0: Thank you very much. Yes, behind you. Yes, sir. Um, I
1: was just wondering how far is regional cooperation possible <clears throat> given the strategic context uh, and competition surrounding the Strait of Hormuz?
0: Okay. Yes, please.
2: Um, you, you talked about uh, the Saudi-Iran feud a little bit, um, and on the way through, we were actually talking about how rhetoric in the West is kind of changing for Saudi Arabia. Um and and you didn't mention anything about Israel and so in in I guess what sense do you see kind of um, the rhetoric shifting more for Saudi Arabia in in
1: in contrast to the Iran Israeli feud? Okay. Um, so uh, I Put simply, completely agree with you. I think, I think this discrepancy between um, what the moderate administration of President Rouhani wants and what Supreme Leader Khamenei and the IRGC want, um, both domestically, but let's focus on foreign policy now, is uh, it poses a real problem. Uh, actually, it, it really makes a lot of Iranian foreign policy very incoherent. Um, and I think that you have seen that in the last little while because, for example, Iranian engagement, obviously, on the nuclear issue, was you know, wholehearted um, engagement because they really, I mean, this was something that they wanted to resolve and this was something that President Rouhani's team had a mandate for. Um, and so they pursued it, they negotiated hard. It was difficult for them at times because, again, they couldn't agree to anything on their own. They had to get the Supreme Leader's approval. So um, you saw a, a number of times in the negotiations over the past two years where you know the mood would be great, things would look good after one of the rounds of negotiations. You know they had made progress, and then a couple of days later, you'd get an echo from Tehran, where you'd come, the supreme leader come out and make a speech where he'd set a number of red lines going back on some of the stuff that Iran had reportedly agreed to in the negotiations. So the, it, there was a lot of you know you take two steps forward, one step back, a lot of a lot of that throughout the negotiations. But because Rouhani controlled this file. Um, he was able to kind of coax the Supreme Leader, explain things to him, um, and he really had the Supreme Leader's ear, I think, on this issue, um, so that they could secure a deal. Um, I think another area where you see, uh, I mean, this in large contrast to, for example, what they're doing in Syria right now. Um, I think another area where you see incoherence, actually, is in Iraq, because you have, um, again, Zarif's team, who has a very clear idea, of what they can do in order to push ISIS back, in order to you know regain control of parts of Iraq, um, and then you, when you talk to some of these officials, you see their extreme frustration with what they hear is also happening on the ground in Iraq, with things like what some of the um, massacres that you know Shia militias have carried out, or the fact that, for example, when Shia militias go through some of these towns, they plaster pictures of Khomeini um, and Khomeini in these towns, and I think that the the Zarif and his team understand that this doesn't help the Iranian cause, this doesn't help anything other than you know, stoke t- sectarian tensions further. Um, so yes, there is a great deal of incoherence. Um, I think it's particularly obvious now because there is this larger contrast between what the president and his team want and what the supreme leader and his team wants, um, which wasn't necessarily present um, in the recent history. Um, and in terms of what it means for building trust, well, it's a real problem because you have countries, particularly the Gulf Arabs, who rightly so say, but why should we believe what Rouhani is saying when his ability to deliver in the region is really quite limited? Um, and why should we believe that you know Rouhani is able to mend ties with, with us in Riyadh, for example, when two minutes later, you know, you have somebody else making a different decision about what to do in Yemen or what to do in Iraq or the fact that they refuse to negotiate on um, Assad stepping down, which, of course, they're not refusing to negotiate on right now, but, but you get the idea. So, um, so no, it, it's, a, it's a real problem for building trust in the region, but I guess I would argue that it's a fact of life in Iran right now. And so dwelling on the fact that we're not going to be able to do anything, well, there's no point in talking to Iran because we don't know who we're talking to, is not really gonna resolve anything. Instead, um, I think that they should firstly um, respond to some of Zarif's overtures to, um, to talk, for example, to, to leaders in, in Riyadh, um, and at least try to build channels of communication um, amongst themselves, knowing that, well, at the end of the day, they'll do what they can, but they might not be able to deliver on everything.
2: Uh, did they learn any lessons from, let's say, the failures of Khatami's era, because I guess the same incoherence happened there, and they tried to... Please something. more clearly, I cannot understand. So it. the question... Uh, it, yeah, the question is, did they learn any lessons from the incoherence issues uh, during Khatami's era, and mm-hmm. how is this one, if it, it is different from uh, the issue?
0: Maybe we can come back to that if you sure. just answer the other questions. Yeah. Sure.
1: I'm just going to write it down so I don't forget it. Yeah. Um, So I think the second question was on uh, cooperation in the Straits. Um, So the Straits, of Hormuz is a a particularly interesting um, part of all of this in the sense that no matter what's going on um, politically, economically, amongst countries in the region, even amongst Iran and the U.S., cooperation on defending the Straits, or at least, not cooperation, communication on defending the Straits is something that has been ongoing um, I believe since since the revolution, I mean the, the IRG, not yeah the IRGC, um, the naval branch basically, has been in constant communication with the U.S. Um, the U.S. Navy, but only on very tactical, um, you know, issues and incidents in the Straits. Um, it was it's my understanding that yes, they talk basically on like a daily basis. Um, which is which is surprising because you'd think there's no communication between Iran and the U.S., but no, their navies are talking to one another, um, and and I guess it's just because everybody recognizes that this body of water is you know hugely important. So yes, Iran's made multiple threats um, about closing the straits when you know something wasn't going in the direction they wanted it to go. But to be honest, Iran would be the first person to lose out um, if the straits were closed. So uh, so I don't really believe um, that there's much to those threats Um, and then in terms of uh, Iran, Saudi and Israel um, so I think that Iran has been watching closely um, what everybody is saying both about Israel and and, and about Saudi Arabia I think Iran uh, the Iranian leadership today particularly the officials in the foreign ministry and Zahri's team are very very aware of um, what the foreign media says about them, um, what it says about other countries. Um, and, and I think you can kind of see that in, in some of what they've been doing. So let me give you an example. For example, Yemen, Iran was watching very closely what happened, and they kind of um, turned the, the, the tide of the, the media war, at least, Against um, Saudi Arabia, quite quickly, with a lot of the statements that they were making, a lot of the efforts, um, uh, the, basically what they were doing in in Yemen, and so they spent a lot of time, for example, both in the Iranian Iranian media, but also, you know, funneling it to foreign media, talking about you know how what Saudi Arabia was doing was um, it was awful, obviously, um, that you know there were images coming back from Yemen, there was. They really played on that, they really, I mean, Iran has been notoriously bad at PR until very recently, Um, and I think that, I think it's largely because of of this administration because I think they understand the value of of their image and they know that Iran's image has taken a real beating um, over the last few years, uh, not least of all because of some of the things that it has said and done, Um, and so they're trying to fix that. Um, And I think that in Yemen, they've done a real stellar job with it, um, and so yeah, so I think they're they're watching closely what everybody is saying. Um, I think I know that a lot of Iranian officials are kind of you know chuckling at themselves um, about the kind of change in tide of opinion um, in the U.S. Uh, vis-a-vis Israel to a certain extent, vis-a-vis the Saudis to a certain extent. Um, but I don't I don't think there's any difference in terms of Iran's relations with Saudi Arabia and Iran's relations with Israel as a result of these different perceptions.
0: Okay. So, more questions, please. Yes, the general at the far back. Thanks.
3: Uh, A couple of questions about that. Um, One's about
0: Lebanon, whether the Saudi and Iranian seems that they agreed on Frangia as a future president. Does that mean that there's any repression on there, or is it coincident? The same thing is about the Qatari Amir at Anga seem to give a very friendly speech about Iran. Uh, While well, traditionally,
3: you know, associated with Iranian policies either in Syria or Yemen. So, what behind, what's behind that? Yes, sir, please. Uh, I'm Japanese uh, <coughs> and uh, I'm here uh, in London for one year. And uh, uh, my main interest now is the uh, same as you, and uh, I almost uh, agree with your argument. Uh, but I want to point out some very uh, simple fact. Uh, This is that, well, uh, now the good point for Iran is that uh, the main uh, hot issues, uh, Syria and Yemen. Iran Iran, uh, has no uh, uh, border with those. Uh, uh, But uh (coughs) in case of uh, Turkey, uh, Syria uh, uh, has a border. And, of course, uh, in Yemen's case, uh, the uh, Saudi Arabia has a very uh, delicate world. So uh, the good point is this. Uh, and, uh, but the uh, uh, bad point for Iran is that Iran uh, has no friend in the region, and I think, for the near future. So uh, how about this? Thank,
0: Thank you. you. Yeah, maybe one more. Yes, please.
2: Um, my question is about the relations between Iran and Egypt. Recently, Iran uh, allowed Egyptian citizens to enter the country without a visa. And uh, during the Morsi administration, the ties were kind of building ties together. But after Sisi, Sisi is closer now to Saudi Arabia. What do you think will happen in terms of relations between the two countries after
0: the Okay. All right. All right. all very easy
4: Easy questions, questions,
1: really. (laughs) Right, okay. um, I think we almost forgot your question about uh, Khatami, so I'll start with that. Um, I think you clearly have a situation here where uh, Rouhani and his team have watched, lived what happened under Khatami and have clearly drawn lessons from it. Um, And I think we need to remember also that Rouhani is no Khatami. Um, Khatami was very much uh, a moderate... Rouhani is being labeled a moderate, and his policies are moderate, but he's um, he's no reformist. He is, you know, he's a product of, of, of this regime. Um, he's been very much plugged in <coughs> since the beginning, which actually is a great thing, because that means he is better placed than anybody else to play the game, to negotiate with the different factions, and, you know, to, to come to the agreement that we have today on the nuclear issue. So, um, So I think there's been a lot of you know, lessons learned, uh, taken from the Khatami era, for sure. Um, and so hopefully they won't make the same mistakes now. Um, on the other questions. Uh, so on Lebanon. Um, yes, I think, I think Lebanon um, is a good example of what can happen when Saudi Arabia and Iran can agree on an issue. <laughs> yeah, it's as simple as that. Um, the, the problem is, well, I guess the, the positive point is that in Lebanon, their interests converged. Um, and so it was relatively easy to come to a solution, and the solution was very much, you know, needed. Um, so it, it, it was it was easier for them to come to an agreement on that than perhaps it would be on well, not perhaps clearly it would be on Syria. Um, but but I think I mean, other than saying that it's a clear example of of uh, the good that can come out of you know Riyadh and Tehran talking to one another, I'm not sure what more I can what more I can add to that. Um, it would be good if that was now considered a, a good confidence-building measure between the two countries so that they could you know, build on that and talk about other issues. I just think that, sadly, we're not at the stage where, um, uh, where Riyadh is prepared to, to do that today, um, and, and perhaps even where Iran is, is prepared to deliver in a way that would make Riyadh happy um, to sit down at the negotiating table with Iran. On Qatar, uh, yes, Qatar has been a very interesting um, country to watch in the last little while because um, in my uh, scaling, perhaps, of of GCC countries and where they stand vis-a-vis Iran, um, I would have put Qatar in Saudi Arabia's camp um, along with, well, definitely Bahrain, but um, more leaning towards that side rather than the Omani side um, because Oman's been a much more pragmatic actor in the Middle East or in the Gulf with Iran um, uh, in the last little while. Um, but I think the tide is turning there. Um, I think Qatar, uh, for a number of reasons, perhaps because uh, because the Emir is just keen to have you know his own foreign policy that does not follow Saudi Arabia's, well, I think that definitely plays into it, um, because it has a number of, because Qatar has a number of interests that are aligned with Iran, because they have the gas fields. For a number of reasons, I think, a. a ooh, uh, Qatar <laughs> has to be um, considerably more pragmatic um, and has to deal with Iran in a way that perhaps riyadh doesn 't feel it has to today um, so yeah i think I think that the, they 're more willing to talk to Iran, and I think that that 's likely to only get better in the foreseeable future um, unless there are spoilers that arise and we all know that in the Middle East there are a million spoilers so um, in terms of Iran not having friends in the region. Um, Yes and no, exactly, to a certain extent, um, Pakistan is perhaps a friend, but but I think moving beyond whether it actually has friends or not, I would say that Iran isn't too bothered by that. It's never been too bothered by that. It's not so much a question, or uh, the Islamic Republic, I would say. It's not so much a question of having um, friends as having um, groups, uh, proxies, allies, on a smaller level that you can turn to and be sure that they will be on your side should you we need them to. That,
3: uh, I'm uh, thinking of uh, now uh, collaboration uh, to some extent of Turkey and Saudi and Qatar vis a vis Iran and Russia. You didn't mention about Russia, but Russia is mm-hmm. uh,
1: yeah.
3: uh, one very important.
1: Yeah, again, I agree, but I think that, um, I think that Iran um, and perhaps to a lesser extent certain actors in the GCC, Qatar being one of them, um, are relatively pragmatic, so they will pick and choose the issues that they will talk on um, and be friends with on and and, and then ignore others. Um, and I think to a certain extent, that's probably what most states do anyway. I mean, if you look at Russia, for example, um, Russia didn't really have an interest in the nuclear agreement, let's be honest, um, but it negotiated you know, as part of the P5 plus one, it didn't in any way deviate from what the P5 plus one wanted, despite the fact that things like Ukraine were going on. Um, So, I mean, I think that's a good example of just what a pragmatic actor will do when it needs to do it, so. um, Iran and Egypt, that's a good one. So I I watched, um, I watched, I like, I researched a little bit um, Iran and Egypt's relations, particularly when Morsi came to power, and watched closely when he visited Tehran and the impact that that was having on Iranians and how the, um, how the government in Iran got really excited because they were like, "Okay, this is you know a product of the arab spring it 's an Islamic government, and it 's Egypt you know so we can we can get them on our side we can I th- there was a lot of excitement in Iran um, when Morsi came to power and then when he came to Tehran and then he came to Tehran and he gave a speech that shocked much of the Iranian government um, he and, and I, think, I think the Iranian leadership was like, whoa, hold on, this guy's supposed to be our ally. What's he doing? And so they were a little bit thrown by that. And I think that that kind of marked the beginning of you know, maybe realism kicking in a little bit, which happens from time to time in Iran. Um, and, and them going, okay, well, again, I guess we'll have to be pragmatic. We'll work with him where we can. We'll call him our ally when we can. And then when he does stuff like this, well, you know, we'll, we'll do with it what we can. Um, then Morsi left, CC came along, and as you say, he's much closer to the Gulf Arabs. So to be honest, I don't know what to say about um, Egyptian-Iranian relations today. I think that for Iran, it's not after Morsi left and, and kind of you know damaged all their dreams of you know, having a great ally in the region. I think um, I think Iran, I think that kind of cooled Iran's appetite for having good relations with Egypt. And then of course, when you know CC went to the other side. Iran was like, well, what are we, we're not going to be able to compete with Gulf money, so what can we do?
0: Maybe we'll do one more round. Sure. If you're not too tired. No, let's
4: do it. It's okay. all right.
0: Yes, please.
4: I would like to ask you about relations between Morocco and Iran, because that's very, very interesting, because Morocco is in a coalition, you know, with Saudi Arabia against Yemen. But not only that, there is such a sort of Iranian phobia and anti uh, Shia mentality that goes, you know, from the top to the bottom, and that's very interesting because there's no Shia threat in, yeah. in Morocco. There's no, I mean, of course, um, you know, there's a lot of links between the Shah and and uh, the Alawi dynasty, but that doesn't explain it because it's a very pragmatic uh, way of thinking in Morocco. So this is something I, who live in Morocco, but never never understood. I mean, mm. Sh- Shias are uh, just something. Uh, akin to the devil and I don't understand why that is. I've never been able to understand it. So I don't know if you have any understanding, especially in Yemen. I mean, why would they go and, you know, it's, mm. it's. so I was wondering if you had, had any sort of wisdom on this issue or any logic to your part, let's
0: say. Simon, please.
4: Um, thank you for the talk. I just wanted to ask if you think that the Gulf states' fears of Iran's regional expansionist policies are justified or whether you think it's historical.
0: The uh, gentleman in the far back in the glasses.
4: Um, I was just
2: wondering, how does Russia's presence in Syria changed the dynamics of the region?
0: Okay. But there you go.
1: Um... On Morocco, I'm not even going to begin to try and tackle that because I actually have no idea. But what I will say is, um, is that this this fear of Shias and Shia Islam, I mean, it is it is by no means limited to Morocco. It really is, particularly recently, I really think it's something that's, I mean, it's just gone viral in the region. I think, yeah, no, perhaps. But it's also, I mean, I think it's, it's to a certain extent a combination of for countries that don't have majority Shia populations, fear of the unknown. Um, it's also what the Shias have been built up to represent. Um, because at the end of the day, it really is just a war of words um, and and what yeah and what one side you know perceives the other to be, but also how they show the other person to be. So, um, and I think that sadly, this sectarian dimension to what's going on in the region. I mean, it's. I really think it's it, obviously you have to deal with it today, but it's. Fabricated. It has no place in the region. I think, um, believe it or not, um, Iran doesn't have an interest in in sectarianism, uh, in stoking sectarian tensions, because Iran wants to see itself as the leader of all of Islam, not just the Shi'as. Um, And so I think it's now been cornered to a certain extent, and it kind of has to partake in these dynamics because their Shia brothers you know, reach out to them throughout the region in various conflicts, and they can't be seen to turn them down and push them away. Um, and so despite itself, it's taking part in this, which is, of course, worsening um, the entire situation. So uh, in terms of what Morocco is doing uh, in Yemen and places like that, again, I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't possibly say, but I think that to a certain extent when it comes to what North African countries do, um, and when they, you know, align with a lot of the Gulf countries, I wonder if that's not more related to just being like, you know, yes, we're being we're being good. Um, yes. So yes. do reward us later, please. Um, I think. Um, on so I've written Iran's expansionism. What was the question? The
0: Gulf fears. Right. Whether, whether it's justified.
1: Um, in short, yes and no. Uh, it 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 isn't. Uh, which one should I start with first? It isn't justified. Um, because Iran does not have some grand strategy of taking over the region, um, converting everybody to Shia Islam, and you know, controlling all of the Middle East, um, obviously. Uh, what Iran wants to do is be safe and secure. Um, I mean, it's as simple as that, and it acts like any pragmatic state actor um, in the region, if not in the world. Um, it identifies a threat, it tackles it, um, Always, not always great but, it, but in my view the Islamic Republic doesn't have a massive grand strategy other than we're a force to be reckoned with um, don't mess with us but beyond that there's no grand plan or grand strategy to take over the region so in that respect no it, it, they really It's and the way that they see it I mean it really is an ever-present, all-encompassing fear. I mean, you sit down and you talk to some Gulf officials, particularly um, officials from Saudi Arabia, and you can't even reason with them. I mean, they're really, they're like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm like, no, I swear to you, I understand. (laughs) Just hear me out. So it's, it's, um, it's really interesting to watch that dynamic, actually, where they are perhaps to a certain extent justified is because Iran sometimes does things and, more importantly, says things Um, that comes across incredibly aggressive um, and like it wants to take over the region. So when an Iranian parliamentarian comes out and says, Tehran now controls four Arab capitals, understandably, that makes a number of countries really nervous. Um, So I think Iran doesn't help itself, but I think that that is a product of the political dynamics internally rather than the image that Iran wants to portray um, outside its borders.
0: The Russian intervention.
1: Yeah, right. Um, so that's a really tough one. Um, I, I, I think it has—it's it's been fascinating to watch. Firstly, what Russia has done um, in the region, what Russia has done on the nuclear issue, on Syria's chemical weapons, on Assad—it's just been—and—and and watching that with the context of Ukraine going on in the background, right? It's been—it's been really interesting to watch how these dynamics have unfolded. Um, I think. Russia for Iran certainly um, is kind of like, you know, the little kid that's growing up wants to do its own thing, or this is how the Iranians view it, I'm not saying it's accurate, but you know, the little kid's growing up and now has an opinion of its own and you're kind of like, why don't you just go along with what I'm telling you to do, you know? I really think that a a lot of the Iranian leadership um, views Russia that way. despite the fact that I guess Russia is the country with nuclear weapons and the bigger superpower, but let's not get into that. Um, so in terms of what's going on in Syria, um, Iran firstly doesn't see itself in an alliance with Russia. It's a, it's a marriage of convenience. It's, you know, they have to do this together because they just happen to have this common goal. Um, so people that talk about an alliance between Iran and Russia and you know, which is the bigger player in it, I, I think that's completely wrong. Um, I do, however, think that the Iranians think that despite the fact that they're not in an alliance, they are the stronger power in this relationship in terms of what's going on in Syria. Um, and the Iranians very much think that they're the ones that are dictating policy in Syria and what's going on. And I would argue that perhaps to a certain extent, um, this was the way that it was going at first, um, but I don't know if that's because Russia was happy to go along with what Iran was saying or just Russia's interests aligned with Iran initially. Um, and now Russia's being a little bit more forceful and a little bit more adamant um, about what it wants in Syria. So, I, I mean, I, I guess just watch the space and see how it evolves. But, um, but, but I do know that it's something that makes Iranian officials very nervous today.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Dina. You're welcome. Um, it's absolutely comprehensive, a survey of the region. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> no
4: more questions? I, don't, I don't
0: have anything <laughs> really to add, no, okay. o- other than to say that...
1: I've um, bored <clears> you to death. Not at all,
0: not at all. Other, other than to say that um, uh, I'm a historian, so uh, I always like to emphasize the historical context for, for, for everything that goes on. And I think for a lot of these actors in the region... What they remember is pre-revolutionary Iran and the power and influence of Iran before under the Shah, you know, before 1979.
3: That's right.
0: Uh, which largely had something to do with the U.S.-Iran relationship, and the special relationship the United States had with Iran, especially during the Nixon, Kissinger years. And and bizarrely, they see this as a kind of replay, this nuclear deal as some kind of replay of what happened. I've heard that many <laughs> times. Um, and uh, and and no matter how and, and you know and the the answer I always give to them is that well the Cold War is over um, and that yes there are many continuities between the Islamic Republic and the Shahs Iran in terms of ambition in terms of identity and so on and so forth but um, uh, but Iran really the Islamic Republic the idea I mean I couldn't agree more with you the idea of the Islamic Republic as this kind of all-powerful force that is driving the dynamics of the region is probably the biggest myth that is is still perpetuated. I mean, here is a country that can um, barely prop up its own currency, that has runaway inflation and unemployment problems, um, a country in which you can't even use a credit card, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and how is this country you know, possibly going to compete with the likes of um, Turkey or Saudi Arabia, or these other sort of g20 um, uh, economies the, ch- the challenge of security in the region isn 't really international conflict it 's about the collapse of Arab states and the va- political vacuums that that creates and and the regional actors Iran included um, have completely failed to respond to that to that problem you know, and are leaving us with a mess that is affecting us directly here in Europe, in all kinds of ways. Anyway, well, all I can say is thank you so much for coming and joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to have you here. Um, Before I let you all go, um, I want to remind you that um, our next event will be in the new year, on the 14th of January, when Professor Madawi al-Rashid Um, launches her new book Muted Modernists The Struggle Over Divine Politics in Saudi Arabia so I invite you all please to come back uh, for that but
4: now please join me in thanking Dina